to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for your many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, and they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 26. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not, does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord God, that you would open our minds and our hearts today to receive from your word, Father. O Lord, as we read through this text, we pray that you would illuminate to us the truths here, the eternal truths, and speak to our hearts and correct us of our anxieties, of our worries, O Lord, of of our greediness, O Lord, of our wrong attitudes, O Father God. And that we may be understand that true wealth and true treasure comes 
in knowing you, Christ our Lord. I pray, Father, as we continue in this series, that our minds would be transformed and our hearts renewed, and that we would have a different approach in how we deal with finances and with wealth. In Christ's name, amen. Money, get back. I'm all right, Jack. Get your hands off of my stack. Money, it's a crime. Share it fairly, but don't take a slice of my pie. Money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. 49 years ago, Pink Floyd. I would have known I grew up with that. How do we think of money and wealth? Also, growing up in the 80s, I was accustomed to watching movies of that time in Wall Street was a very famous movie with Michael Douglas of that time, and uh, no one could forget uh, the, the cliché that came out of that movie by the character Gordon Gekko, Greed is Good. It characterizes much of what is American society. We live in a society that is very wealthy, one of the wealthiest nations that ever existed in history by far. Even the poorest of Americans live better and some of the middle class of other nations in this world. And as a result, we have been uh, spoiled, in a sense, with great luxuries and great um, uh, blessings, in the same sense, in this country. But at the same time, it's created a monster within a monster of a culture that is bound up with the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of riches, um, a society that is bound up in a culture of greed and covetousness, and it's infiltrated the church. Probably the greatest demonstration of that in the church is the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology, the very, the very theology that's going to Yankee Stadium on August 6th, which we seek to, um, to counter with the true gospel. And so the question then is, how do we think about money and wealth, especially in the last few years, uh, when we think about the last few years with COVID, there's been a lot of shifts. Um, we've seen a lot of extremes. In one sense, investors have never seen a better time in history. They made windfall profits in the stock market and in other assets. On the other hand, we've seen people lose everything, their jobs, their homes, and suffer through extreme loss. In fact, the richest 1% have gotten even richer in the last few years. According to Bloomberg, the middle 60% of U.S. households by income, a measure economists often use as definition of the middle class, saw their combined assets drop to 26.6% of national wealth as of this past June, the lowest in Federal Reserve data going back three decades. But for the first time, the super rich had a bigger share at 27%. The top 1%, which we often hear about, represents about 1.3 million households who roughly make more than $500,000 a year. And I think a lot of those people tend to live in the state of New York. And out of a total of almost 130 million people, the concentration of wealth in the hands of a fraction of the population is at the core of some of our country's biggest political battles. Often you hear the term income inequality, and so we have to level the playing field. But what does the Bible say about income inequality? What does the Bible say? 
why are there some people who have more than others? And the truth is, that yes, greed does play a lot, a part of it, but there are other aspects too. Proverbs 10.4 says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And we, we, we live in a nation where a lot of people are, do not want to work. In the last two years, we've seen some of the greatest amounts of resignations of people quitting their jobs. Some people are simply born into wealth, and we know that 1 Samuel 2.7 tells us that God is sovereign. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich, he brings low and he exalts. We talked about this last time. In some cases, some people are just more talented than others. God gives different talents and abilities to different people. I am not a good basketball player, neither am I a good football player, neither am I a good baseball player, but there are some athletes that are exceedingly good at it and make millions of dollars in their profession. I wished I could play that good, but I cannot. So we have some people who are gifted and talented. We have some people who are great actors and actresses. So the question remains then, what about inequality? After all, everyone should get a fair share, right? Well, what do we look towards the Bible? This is precisely what the young man or the man who confronted Jesus in his ministry asked. My brother received his inheritance from my father. Tell him to give me my fair share. So just a little background of this. In the ancient world... When a father died, he left all of his wealth to the firstborn son. So it doesn't matter if you have two kids or ten kids. The firstborn son, not the daughter, the firstborn son gets everything. And then the firstborn son, as he is given discretion, determines who else will get a portion of the wealth. So if the firstborn son decides that his other nine brothers fairly deserve nine pieces of the property or sisters, he'll divide the portion nine ways. If the brother decides to keep it all for himself, he's entitled to do that if he feels so. And so what the young man is asking Jesus to do is to get involved in this act of injustice. My brother has received all this money. He's doing well. I want my fair share. Please intervene and help me. What is Jesus' response? Well, for one thing, it is common for people in this time to seek rabbis to mediate in their legal and ethical debates. And so in this man approaching Jesus to help him settle the dispute, it was not out of the norm. It's hard to discern the situation, but I think what we have to understand is at heart, this man is a materialist. And that is because of the way Jesus responds Notice what he says. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he turned to the crowd and warned them, take care and be on your guard against all forms of covetousness. Now, I think it's important there to see two things. Number one is that Jesus wants to distinguish to this man what his role is. The Son of Man did not come to this world to settle such petty matters. Was there injustice? Maybe, probably. But that is not of a concern to Jesus. What he's trying to say to them, who made me arbitrator? He's saying, listen, I'm not concerned about these matters. I came here not to render judgments on social, economic, and political and civil matters. He came here not to settle disputes among the people. He came here to make spiritual judgments, to deal with men's hearts. 
And the issue here was a heart issue. He could see into the man's heart and his own attitude. Whether he was treated fairly or unfairly wasn't the issue. The issue was he had a wrong attitude about money and wealth. You see, often I think what what divides people, whether you're a socialist or capitalist, doesn't make a difference. It's your attitude about money. Both the socialists and capitalists share one thing in common, that wealth and its distribution and how it's attained is the most important thing in life. Randy Alcorn says this, greed transcends all economic philosophies, social systems, political parties, religions, and financial institutions. It's part of our basic sinful nature. See, at the end of the day, what really boils down to is people think that the more they have, the better off and the happier they will be. And so those who have a lot sit back and think that they're okay with a sense of false securities. And those who have not envy those who have and want to take it from them to think that they'll be happier if they had it. When both realize that neither one has it right. You see, Jesus wants to confront this false view of life. And he presents a kingdom principle through this warning. He tells the crowd to be on their guard against all forms of covetousness. That is, greed can come in all different shapes and sizes. Greed is not something that is a one-size-fits-all. There is a devilish variety of greed, and it fits the person based on their worldview or their personality. Greed and, material, greed and materialism often come in more subtle and indetectable ways in our life. It could come in us sometimes cloaked in virtue, like Judas Iscariot. I remember Judas at the, when they were in Bethany at the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and, and, and Mary poured out the ointment on Jesus' feet. It was expensive ointment. And remember Judas protested, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And John gives us a footnote that Judas cared nothing for the poor. He only cared with lining his own pockets. So sometimes people's greed can be cloaked with good intentions. Sometimes it comes with playing the role of the victim like the man in our narrative. I I deserve more, I deserve better, and I'm going to get it any way I can. And we justify, in some cases, even robbing and stealing, the Robin Hood mentality. Sometimes it comes in the form of posting or hoarding of possessions like the man in the parable. Jesus wants those who are listening to realize something. Greed is no good. Greed is bad. Greed is dangerous. Life does not consist, and this is the principle, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. What he's saying that having a lot of things doesn't make your life more meaningful. Having a lot of things doesn't make your life more important. That's what the world thinks, and that's what the world advertises, and that's what the world sells. I love when I watch a football game and you see Matthew McConaughey driving a Cadillac going around to Lincoln, I think. He's, he's selling for Lincoln. He wants you to buy a Lincoln. And, and the goal of advertising, oh, look at Matthew McConaughey driving that smooth Lincoln and, and get you out there to go buy one when you can't afford it because you think I'm going to be as smooth as Matthew McConaughey in that car. You don't have the money he does and you'll be broke. 
But that's not the point. The point is to make you feel like your life is more meaningful, important. You see, materialism is, is, is something at the core of our sinful nature. It's when we place more value in things and possessions than God and people. Jesus wants us to know this is not what life is all about. It is a futile attempt to find meaning in life outside of God. Look with me at Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11, verse 28. Pardon me. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. It's a warning to us. A warning not to trust in wealth. A warning not to trust in riches. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. So Jesus gives a parable to explain this principle. So the principle is this. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Don't trust in riches, okay? Now let's look at the parable. First, Jesus uses parables to explain the kingdom principles he wishes to convey. In this parable, the central character is the rich man. He exemplifies a person who is materialistic. He is identified as a rich man, a person of wealth, but he's also described as a fool. Thus the parable of the rich fool. The question is, what makes him a fool? Well, the first thing that makes him a fool is he is a selfish and proud man. Eight times in the parable, the word I is used. And four times the word me is used. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, myself. This is a man who's bound up with his own world, his own ego, and himself. Nowhere in this parable does he recognize that God has given him anything. Nowhere does he think about others outside of himself or acknowledge that God has blessed him. All of his reasoning, all his financial planning, everything is centered around one central figure, and that is himself. He's not concerned with anyone or anything other than self. As we know, the scripture teaches, this is our greatest enemy. His heart is revealed clearly in verse 19 when he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. A man who is committed to one person. Secondly, the second reason why he's a fool is because he's greedy. He's greedy. While being a rich man is not what makes him bad, it's his attitude towards riches that makes him bad. Let me make this clear. There are a lot of wealthy people who are God-glorifying people. I remember years ago, Claudia and I were blessed with a friend of ours who since passed away, God rest his soul, Joe Brother Joe Capozzi. He invited us to a friend of his house up in Massachusetts. This man owned a construction company in Boston. He was one of the wealthiest contractors in Boston, in the Boston metro area. 
And we went to his house, and I don't think I've ever been in a home so big in my life. It was one of those homes you see on TV. His kitchen was the size of this church. And we had a Bible study in his kitchen. He had a table like that looked like the one in the portrait of the Last Supper that you've seen painted by da Vinci. It was just this long table, and, and we had about 30 people sitting around it, and we had a Bible study. He had a, a pizza oven in his kitchen, a swimming pool in his basement. It was humongous, right on a golf course. man had exceeding wealth but he was exceedingly generous. He had us over his house. They treated us like we were family. We, we had a great Bible study. And this was a man who was donated and gave to so many churches and causes. He was rich towards the kingdom. He didn't hold on to it. The rich man here, the problem was, is that he was already rich. He had more than he needed. And when he had a good year of business and a surplus of gain, how did he deal with it? He kept it all for himself. That's the big problem here. He kept all everything for himself. He said, wow, I had a good year. I grew a lot of grain. Instead of saying, okay, I'm going to donate and help someone else uh, maybe I'll contribute some income towards the temple and, and its rebuilding, or maybe I'll help the poor, the widows and the orphans in my area, or maybe I'll sell the grain and use the proceeds to benefit other people. He says, no, I'm going to keep it all for me. I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to hoard it. After all, if he sold the grain, the price would drop, and then he wouldn't get as much for it. Realize that commodities are held back. The reason why gasoline is so high is not because there's not enough gasoline in the world to make the price low. It's that those who have it are hoarding it and not releasing enough of it so that we can get a better price at it. It's greed. He hoarded the wealth for himself and he couldn't think or possibly consider how he can use his profit to help other people. Thirdly, he didn't think about his divine appointment. He was a fool for three reasons. One, he was a proud man. Two, he was greedy. Three, he never considered his divine appointment. In the parable, you fool, this soul, this night your soul will be required of thee. You see, people who trust in riches never consider the fact that they're going to die one day. And as the scripture says, whose will it be then? You store up all this wealth and all this treasure. You can, you can die tomorrow. Where does it go? Who does it go to? So often, wealthy people, when they die, leave it to their children who don't know how to manage the money. And they squander and lose everything. I've seen it happen many times in my short life. He was a fool because he didn't realize that one day, he would stand before God and give an account. And all that he hoarded, he could not take with him. Where was his treasure? You see, he was a fool. The word fool in Greek means someone with an empty head. When it came to worldly stuff, he was wise. But when it came to spiritual stuff, he was senseless and ignorant. When it came to the world and making good investments and, and being rich, he, was, he had the wisdom of Solomon. But when it came to God and eternal matters, he was dumb as they come. He had no reckoning 
of what was real and what was important. John MacArthur says this, how foolish to be materialist, to be greedy, to be covetous, to be self-indulgent, to hoard what you have and leave it all behind. So is the man who lays up treasure himself. It's not about how much you have, it's what you do with it. So while we could look at this man in his parable with a, a finger pointing saying, what a wicked guy, Jesus gives the parable to illustrate our own hearts. If you just live life thinking about how you could accumulate more wealth and hoard more wealth and you're not rich towards other people, you're missing the mark. You're missing the point. Is everything about you? Is everything about your future, your finances? Or do you consider how you can help others? Do we think, go through life thinking more merely how we could accumulate more stuff? Or do we think about how we can grow and profit and help others? So let's think about this kingdom principle applied. How do we overcome this materialism? How do we overcome the spirit? Number one, recognize materialism is lethal. Materialism is deadly. It kills. Greed kills you. It destroys you spiritually. In Luke chapter 8, 14, when Jesus gave the parable of the sower, he talks about the seed that's choked out. And um, turn, turn there uh, with me, uh, Luke eight fourteen. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. When you go through life with a greedy spirit, with a, with a, a covetous spirit, it chokes out spiritual growth. It kills you spiritually. Materialism brings anxiety and unhappiness. Just, just know this, the more you have, the more problems you have, the more worries you have, the more headaches you have. Secondly, materialism fosters pride and elitism, selfish independence. The rich think they have no worries. Finally, materialism destroys families. 80% of divorces are over money. Materialism is lethal. That's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Why? Because the rich man puts all his security in his wealth and not in God. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Secondly, we must recognize materialism is idolatry. It's when we place our wealth and possessions in the place of God himself. It's when we uh, devote ourselves and commit trust in money more than God. Colossians 3, 5 tells us that all greed is idolatry. So what's the solution to this? Recognizing these things, what is the solution? And Jesus tells us in as we go back to Luke 12, it's about an attitude. What drives this greed? It's anxiety. It says in chapter 12, verse 22, he said to the disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat, nor about your body, nor what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus' audience was primarily poor people. He's not dealing with a lot of rich people in his context. He's dealing with primarily poor people. So these are people who say, okay, Jesus, you're talking about the guy. We're not the guy with the, with the silos. We're, we're, we're wondering where we're getting our next meal from. We're, we're day laborers. We're living paycheck to paycheck. We're broke. This is not speaking to us. And that's the whole point Jesus is saying. It is for you. Because in your day-to-day anxiety and worrying and striving about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink, you're in the same position as a man. You're putting all of your confidence in this world and its comforts. See, this shows you it doesn't matter the amount of wealth you have. It's your attitude that matters most. Jesus says, don't worry, don't be anxious. You know what undergirds all worrying and anxiety? Control. What undergirds all worrying and anxiety is control. People worry and are anxious when they lose control. I get anxiety when I'm in an airplane. Why? Because I'm not behind the wheel. Some of you don't like when other people drive. You get anxious, you worry. Why? Because you're not in control. And sometimes God throws situations into our life where we're not in control. And worry and anxiety comes in. And there's nothing you can do about it. But God puts us in those situations. He wants us to feel powerless. He wants us to feel helpless so that our only hope is in him. Amen? You see, when you're not in control, it reminds you that God is in control. Sometimes we need that. The wealthy person thinks they're in control, but they're, they're blind and don't realize they're in no control at all. Jesus says life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He's telling, he's telling his audience that the quality and the essence of our lives is not bound up in what you wear and what you eat. <laughs> apply that to... In American society, we place grace emphasis on fashion. People spend thousands of dollars on designer name brands. And, and, and you know, I'll never forget one time we got handed down a, a shirt um, from a friend of ours. It was a, it was a Lacoste shirt for, for Rachel when she was little. And she says, I don't like the little alligator on the shirt. And I said, Rachel, that little alligator is a lot of money. <laughs> Eternal life is what Jesus is concerned about. Abundant life. When Jesus says, I come to give them life and life abundantly, he's not talking about a quantitative life, but a qualitative life. It's eternal life. It's the life of God. It's the spirit that fills us and gives us true meaning to life. And that no matter how much we have or how little we have, he gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. He uses joy, peace, hope, love, patience, kindness, Gentleness, that's what life's about. Life is bound up in the spirit. That's what matters. Those are the treasures we need. But we also have to be reminded of something else. We're not to be anxious because we are very precious in God's sight. Jesus says, look at the, the, 
The fields, they do nothing, and God arrays them in more beauty than Solomon. And the birds of the air, God feeds them. Aren't you of more value than they? How much value are we that, that, that Christ bore our sins and died on the cross? He loved us so much, he, he spared not his only son, it tells us in Romans chapter 8. Will he not spare anything else? For, what more can he give us? Are we not of supreme and infinite value to the king of the universe? More than the sparrow, more than the grass? And we worry as if God dropped the ball, as if he's not paying attention, as if he doesn't care? Where's your faith? Jesus is saying. We are his treasure, the apple of his eye. The psalmist, the psalmist said, he will not suffer the righteous to beg bread. God provides. He provides for us according to his riches and glory. Eternal riches. And at times we may have to suffer. At times we may go through difficult times, but it's a testing. God will always get us through. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold to a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. God cares about you and he cares about me. Infinitely more than you care for yourself. Infinitely more than anyone else will care for you. So with that in mind, Jesus tells us two things. There's two lessons to take away from here. Number one is having the right priorities. He says in verse 29, do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Put the kingdom of God first. If your life is driven by what meeting your needs, satisfying your needs, and chasing after, you know, uh, uh, you know, and worrying about where am I, how am I going to pay the rent, and I got to do this, and I got. If that's your life, you're 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 all out of whack. Your priorities are wrong. You should be pursuing God and His kingdom and His righteousness with all your heart. Put Him first. Say, Lord, I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm not going to stress about it. I'm putting you and your kingdom first. I am going to live for you. And everything else will take care of itself. I can't tell you how much that principle has played out in my own life. God will more than take care of you when you put him first. The problem is, it means letting go of that control trusting that God's in control. Psalm 37, 3 through 4 says, Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Finally, to be generous. You see, just as God is generous and gracious, we're to be generous and gracious. That's the cure to all of this. The rich fool hoarded everything. He kept it all. And he died and couldn't keep none of it. It's the person who has a generous and giving heart 
who is the wealthiest. Look what Jesus says in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fall, fail. For where there is no thief and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Paul echoes these same words in 1 Timothy 6.17. In 1 Timothy 6.17, it says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation of the future so that they may take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. Keep your focus on what the true treasure is. When you're generous and you give, just remember one thing, you cannot outgive God. God blesses you. And the more you give, the more he gives you and, and to enable you to give more. And so what this comes down to is we, we come down to a conclusion. There are basically two treasuries in this life you could invest in. You can invest in the treasury of the world and follow the path of Gordon Gekko, follow the path of Pink Floyd, and follow the path of everyone else in the world that is seeking to just accumulate more and hoard more because they've put their trust and confidence in material possessions. Or that your attitude is that, you know what? Whether how little or how much I have, it doesn't matter. But it's living at peace with God, trusting in him, seeking him first, and being as generous as I could in all circumstances. Not worrying about what the next guy has. Lord, tell him to share the inheritance with me. No, put God first, seek him. Be generous, give. For it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Where is your treasure? Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, the tragedy of the rich fool in the parable is the tragedy of many people in the world is that one day they will stand before God. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, is appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. And on that day, the secrets of our heart will be revealed. Doesn't matter how much or how little you have, it's your heart that counts. Jesus uses this to teach us and instruct us a very important lesson. The Lord reminds us to be rich towards God. That's where we need to put our treasure. That's where we need to put our heart. Everything else is just a waste. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, almighty God, for this 
uh, word today. Thank you for instructing us. And Lord, there's not one person here who doesn't need to hear this. We all need to humble ourselves and learn and be guard our hearts against all forms of covetousness. Covetousness is so insidious and it sneaks up on us in different ways. Teach us, O oh Lord. Teach us through this to treasure you and treasure the kingdom and seek you first. Oh, Father, forgive us for the, for the worrying and the anxieties. Forgive us for the, whether we're worried and anxious that we have so much that we need to build more barns or so anxious about worrying where the next meal is coming from, Lord. All anxiety is not from you, but it's from the flesh. We rest our cares. We cast our cares upon you, Lord, for you care for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much, for dying for us. And forgive us, O oh Lord, for when we, when we don't value the infinite treasure of the riches of Christ. Please bless the hearing of this word in Christ's name. Amen.